0: Hi and welcome to Nassio Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock
1: in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Meredith Ward, and I'm also in Lexington, Kentucky. Meredith is helping us out again today as guest co-host while we await our new Director of Government Affairs. That's right. And on today's episode, we are so excited to have the nation's longest serving state chief information security officer, or CISO, as we like to call him, Eric Avakian from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So we're going to be talking today about his work in Pennsylvania over the last 12 years.
0: Well, let's get started. Eric, welcome to NASIO Voices and thanks so much for
2: joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here today
0: yeah, absolutely. So before we jump into some questions about your work, tell our listeners briefly about your background and how you ended up in your current role as CiSO for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania.
2: Yeah, so it's an interesting story. I've been with the Commonwealth. Wow, I think since two thousand and five, and I originally came here, I moved here from Florida. I'd been down in Florida doing i t work for for a while and moved down here in two thousand and five or moved up here, I should say. My wife is from this area, so she wanted to move back home. And, uh, you know, just kind of got to, you know, started with just by through a contracting position, doing a lot of technical security work at the time, the Commonwealth at that point was just getting involved in an enterprise security program. So my role back then was specifically related to that project, which was to put all centralized type of security tools in place. And, and my main focus in that time was one piece of that project and really uh, heading that effort. And and just through time, after about a year, I became a Commonwealth employee. Um, they brought me on as a full employee. And then a year later, they brought me on as a deputy CISO. They had just hired a CISO back, I think, in 2006. That was the first year that the Commonwealth got its chief information security officer. So with that role, I became deputy in about 2007, and then was promoted to CISO uh, in 2010. So it's been a an interesting um, path as far as how I got to be CISO, but really starting in the trenches as a technical person, purely technical, on a major security project that really was the culmination of the start of the enterprise security program here in the Commonwealth.
1: So Eric, as you said, you have been CISO for about 12 years now. and Of course, that makes you the longest serving state CISO currently And so, you know, I can personally attest to, you know, all the things that you've been able to get done. And you talked a little bit about that. But when you started out as CISO in 2010, not every state had a CISO. So kind of looking back, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the last 12 years, just kind of on the CISO role as a whole?
2: Yeah, it's really been a journey. and, And we have seen a change in this position in general. I think back if I look back in the day you know, when I started early on as a CISO and, and some of the just uh, you know the common mistakes I made, again, coming from a very technical background initially, making that transition to where you need to speak the language of the business. And even back then, that was generally something I was still learning. And what we've seen predominantly with the CISO role, particularly in the years past, was how you saw a lot of technical folks and they weren't able to bridge that communications gap. And CISOs were either thought of as the technical person, you know, that pushes all the buttons and and speaks all the security speak. And nobody really knew what the CISO did. And I think over time, we've really seen the shift in the CISO and really their seat at the table, working directly with the business to working directly alongside the CIO to make business initiatives successful. Because at the end of the day, security while it's about, you know, securing things, it's also about enabling business. And I think that's been the biggest shift where the seat at the table for the CISO has changed. We've it's, it's now more of a risk management discussion and bringing, I guess, that person into the boardroom per se so that that person has a seat at the table and they're heard. But again, importantly, that they have to speak the language of the business. That's been one of my biggest learning experiences if I look back through my career, it's going from technical and taking that knowledge, but then having to change the language and speak the language of the business and so that they understand the importance of security. And that was a huge challenge for me. You know, I remember early in the early days giving reports, you know, 200-page reports of look at all the things that we're blocking. Well, that's not really meaningful to an executive. And it takes, I guess, making some of those mistakes early on to see what works, to see, you know, what makes executives tick, particularly at the business levels. And then learning their language and then bridging that gap between the complex nature of cybersecurity and business so that we can have a business discussion. So for me, that's really what I've seen as the biggest change we've seen with CISOs is speaking the language of the business, getting a seat at the table and really driving business initiatives to success.
1: And really, there's so many components of state government these days that have a, a cyber, you know, part to it. So it's extremely important that the CISO has uh, a seat at the table. And, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit, one of the other things that you've really been able to accomplish in the Commonwealth is collaboration with, between the state and local government. And I know you've worked closely with the Pennsylvania County Commissioners. So talk a little bit about that work, uh, the importance of having a strong relationship with local governments.
2: I think this is by far one of the most important topics and opportunities that still exists out there across state and local government, and that's partnerships and building partnerships, building trust with folks outside of our comfort zone. So, for instance, you know, as state CISOs, we manage our state networks. We're kind of in that little spot, but looking outward and looking at the opportunities and our uh, to partner with local governments, with cities, with counties. Uh, with townships because at the end of the day they need assistance particularly at the local government levels and to look at how to build and forge relationships through collaboration so that we can all work together on the betterment of everybody's cybersecurity. so really proud you know working closely with the pennsylvania county commissioners association we've been doing this for a number of years now uh, and we just really started through working groups and kind of meeting with them on a regular basis and kind of just, you know, started talking during these working groups and and, and forging relationships and then talking about, hey, where are some opportunities that we could work together and partner and, you know, improve collective cybersecurity uh, for the betterment of all, including, you know, efficiently using taxpayer dollars for potentially things like shared services. So that's kind of what we where we started. And we looked for some opportunities several years ago. We partnered with our, our CCAP or County Commissioners. Association on a shared service to provide services, for instance, we were already providing at the state level, such as security awareness training and phishing exercises, and kind of expanding this service to provide a shared service to the counties for those same types of services, you know, basically just taking what already existed, expanding it, achieving economies of scale, where we increase the license counts, but reduce license costs because we were buying more licenses. So it's those types of, I guess, recipes for success that I think we want to continue to build across in the entirety of government. Taking that to cities where we partnered with the city of Philadelphia and took that same approach where now they're partnering on that shared service. And we're you know, continuing that effort, working through this the schools, through the uh, intermediate units to where we can partner closely together on shared service opportunities. But it really starts with getting out there and meeting people and collaborating. So with CISOs, the takeaway here is we've gotta be collaborators. We've gotta work outside of our comfort zones, get outside of our just state you know, area of responsibility and partner with folks who we can work with to where we can all learn together, we can all improve together. And again, at the end of the day, it's about efficient use of taxpayer money. And if we can do that collectively for the greater good of our citizens, then that's success. And so we wanna do more of that taking more types of shared services that we can build on to build those strong relationships across all of local governments.
0: That's great. And I think that is so important that you're thinking about it that way and thinking about an efficient use of taxpayer dollars. And I know a lot of other states listening will probably share that sentiment and will appreciate hearing what you guys are doing. So on another topic, we've been hearing a lot about identity and access management from state CIOs and CISOs. And it's really becoming a huge issue, especially as the pandemic has brought an increased demand for digital government services. Pennsylvania was an early adopter for single sign-on with your Keystone login. Tell us a bit about that.
2: So this is really part of a, a, a customer service initiative. Um, you know, providing better customer service to our citizens. You know, if we look at the architecture of yesteryear with, you know, agencies. So when you look at agencies and agency applications, you know, before shared services transformation, uh, which kind of consolidated all of IT to a central model for IT and HR, you know, where agencies were thought of, each agency had their own application and within each application They had a separate login and a separate authentication mechanism, which meant a different username and ID that uh, folks would need, citizens would need if they're logging into that application. So if somebody wanted benefits, you know, they'd have to have one user ID and password for that. And if they wanted to do something else, if they wanted to be a phishing license or driver's license, all these different types of things, each agency, you know, has predominantly had their own authentication mechanism because each agency was separate in that regard. And and as citizens, I think the takeaway is citizens look at government as government, right? So they don't look, when they think of government, they just want to log in. They want the same type of an experience that I think they can expect when they log into their social media. Or when they go to, for instance, some of these big box retailers that are online, you know, folks can go from one area of the store to another, and they can just start adding things to their cart. And at the end of the day, it's one checkout process. It's one login process. They don't have to remember a lot of usernames and passwords. And so it's really taking the expectation of how people do business with, with their other areas of business, whether it be their banks, whether it be retailers or anything else online, and taking that online experience and bringing it to government. But what that means is really bringing that single face of government approach to our citizens so they only need one credential and with that credential they can get access to certain things they still have to after authentication uh, be authorized through different applications but it's really just providing that s- single i guess credential for our citizens and starting there to provide our citizens a more secure process and a more streamlined process so they're not having to remember hundreds of different passwords to different applications. This is still a work in progress, right? So as people modernize their applications and move closer to the Keystone, uh, when they're modernizing, they can move closer to this model. So it, it's something that's going to take time to get everybody to that point. And I know other states are in different areas of process or progress with this same type of a solution. But I think, uh, you know, Pennsylvania has definitely made a lot of uh, strides in this, but it's definitely a continuous work of progress. And we think it's a good model because, again, citizens expect to do business. They just want one place to go. Uh, They don't want to log in hundreds of times. And I think, again, as government, we owe that experience to our taxpayers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And taxpayers do have that expectation for things being more streamlined and easy in the way that they're used to navigating the online world and their interactions. What is your advice to states who are just starting down this IAM path?
2: I think it's really getting, you know, a team together, right, and working again. I The, the big word is collaboration. It's going out there and, and really trying to understand. It's having a kind of a somebody to spearhead this, first of all. So if there's an identity and access management team, or business area that can spearhead this but then really gathering feedback from the different stakeholders instead of just shoving something down somebody's throat and saying you're going to use this really understanding and gathering that feedback from across all of the different agencies and areas where they where you're going to need that support for them to come aboard this process so having a collaborative approach and really working by partnering and talking to the people that are going to be key stakeholders in this is critical. I think that's the biggest takeaway, really, for any project that you want to be successful, It's uh, particularly if it's a big project, is to getting that buy-in. It's getting them to have a seat at the table and listening to them and gathering their feedback, even if it's potential architecture you know, considerations and things of that nature, so that everybody's feedback is part of the overall solution that gets implemented. I think at the end of the day, people want to be heard and they want to make sure that whatever we're putting in place takes into account those types of considerations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Eric, you talked a little bit, especially with Keystone Login, about streamlining things and making things kind of easier for the citizens of the Commonwealth. And, you know, one thing I know you and I have talked a lot about in the past is that you've really been able to streamline and centralize cybersecurity in Pennsylvania. So talk a little bit about how y'all did that. And do you feel that you're more secure because of it?
2: So this is also, it's a great question. And, and this is what I love about cybersecurity is you're always trying to improve, right? So we're never done. One of the reasons why I just love this area is because you can always improve, you can always get better and looking for the opportunities. So for instance, you know we're always taking a look at wh- where can we streamline? Where can we centralize? For instance, if we see that there's a myriad of tools being used in a given, you know, discipline, is there an opportunity to maybe potentially centralize on those tools so that we can get potentially a a centralized tool at a lower price point because we're utilizing more licenses? So again, increasing a license count can mean reducing the per license costs for each of those licenses. I mentioned that example, shared service, security awareness training, and phishing exercises It's the same approach. We did that with that shared service. So, the more licenses we buy through a centralized solution, the lower each license costs by working with our partner suppliers. So, taking that same model, looking at opportunities where it makes sense to centralize so that we can provide a central set of core capabilities so that there's no haves and have nots. And so that, you know, similarly, everybody can kind of get the win and increase their maturity in a given security capability we can now bring that capability to more people through a centralized approach and again at a lower cost because we're centralizing the licenses under one model I, again i think this is a it's an opportunity that we continue to look for where we can do that with different tools and solutions and at the end of the day i think one of the other benefits is when people start utilizing central services or the same types of services What comes out of that and what we've also seen with the county through the county model, when I mentioned that shared service model and centralizing security awareness and phishing exercises, is you start to build teams of people that say, hey, what are you doing? Oh, we're using that for this. And oh, we did this exercise and we did it this way. Because people are utilizing the common framework of tooling. They're now speaking the same language and they can share ideas and share reports. Oh, we ran this report. We did it this way. And that builds knowledge sharing across different groups and different people. And then that builds relationships. So the outset of what centralizing and streamlining brings at the back end is people working better together and sharing knowledge and learning from each other because they're all, they all have that common denominator and they're all working under a common set of tooling that they can all work better from and, and learn from. It doesn't work in every regard where you can't centralize everything. You know, there are specific tools for certain things, but I think it provides for better visibility, better certainly better use of funds because we're able to reduce costs and provide better visibility and security for everyone. But it provides better relationship building across the teams. Mm-hmm. It really simplifies the language of cybersecurity for everyone. And I do think it leads to more security. Where we think it's a good idea to do that, we will. It's not a one-fit-all approach. Uh, you can't really maybe centralize everything. But it's really just taking a look at your opportunities and where we can build capabilities for the betterment of more people so that there's no haves and have nots. That's what we're trying to achieve.
1: And I do think that that is kind of where state cybersecurity is headed these days, just talking to some of your colleagues or a lot of your colleagues uh, in other states. But you know, also, if we look to the future, and 2022 promises to be a big year for cybersecurity, you know, because of a lot of things that we've talked about today, increased digital government and the pandemic obviously has highlighted so many different things. But understanding that this is always tough. But if you were to look into your crystal ball, you know, do you have any predictions on what CISOs should be prepared to address this year?
2: I think it's just if we take a look at the threat landscape and the speed of information and the just the sheer amount of data and the things that are happening out there in cyber world, I think it's, it's really important to just continue to, to pay close attention to things like ransomware and the types of advanced malware that's out there and the different methods of attack that, that persist, and particularly with su- supply chain risk. I think you know, that some of the incidents that we've seen out there uh, over the past few years related to supply chain continues to be a big area. And I think taking a look at things like uh, zero trust, models, and really employing those disciplines and principles, I think is the answer and key to a lot of this. So zero trust, I know it sounds like the new buzzword and and things that we've been hearing about, but employing, you know, when I look at zero trust, I think of that as, as really kind of a mindset, right? And employing, it's not a technology, it's just a mindset and a culture of really applying different types of processes and, you know, utilizing technology to apply the principles of zero trust where it can be applied through the identity and access management area and through other security tooling, we can apply zero trust principles. I think that is something that needs to be addressed through the CISOs. And I think that's going to significantly help because as we all know, the threats, whether it be ransomware, supply chain risks, and some of those things I mentioned, um, I think they can be better addressed and people can be better prepared. Um, If they're employing some of the zero trust principles uh, that have been put out there.
0: That's great. Thank you for that overview of the serious things that you were working on. Um, And now we are going to pivot to something a little less serious. And as our listeners know, it wouldn't be a Nassio Voices podcast without a segment we call the lightning round. We're going to ask you three fun questions about your life outside of work. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. All right. Question (laughs) one. You might be the first legit rock star that we've ever had on the podcast. So we can't let you go without asking you about your years as a keyboardist for the band Fuel. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that fun fact?
2: Sure. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. So, yep. I was the keyboard player uh, for the band Fuel. I was actually the founding member uh, of the band. Uh, Toured with them in the early nineties, you know, when we were kind of getting started and kind of, you know, did that for a, a few years. It was a lot of fun. Traveled all over the country toured with a lot of uh, pretty big name acts. And it was interesting. It was fun. It was fun. You know, long story short, through the process, I met my wife, basically said, okay, kind of done with this. And, and, you know, we moved to Florida at the time. So it was a great part of my life. I think it really taught me a lot about just how to take something from nothing and make it excellent, right? So yeah. we were just a band and, and we took that band and we took it to the to level that you can take it. And, and it's really taking that same approach and applying it to anything else, like, a, like that recipe approach I was talking about. So being in that situation really helped me in applying those concepts of taking something from nothing, making it excellent. And then, okay, where else can we do this in life? You know, like there's other areas where you can apply the same principles. So I think it's a really important growing point for me because it helped me kind of take that idea or the principles around being successful in music and then applying it through other areas of life. So it was a great time for me. I'm proud of it. I'm still great friends uh, with the folks, um, uh, the original folks from the band. I just talked to one of them who's out in California a few weeks ago. So I still maintain contact when they're great guys.
0: That's great. And And I love that you talk about how, you know, something that you think is completely off your professional resume, it still shapes you into the person that you are today and teaches you lessons that are useful in your career.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, for sure.
1: So, Eric, let's talk about another very famous band that you remember of, the Bad Boys of IT. So, anyone <laughs> who's been around Nasio for a while will remember your all's inaugural performance in Nashville in 2014. I was there. Um, there. So, this was, yeah, Amy was there. Uh, so, a group of talented, you know, Nasio members. Are, are y'all going to do a reunion tour? I mean, what do we need to do to get this together?
2: Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I I'm, I'm all for that. I think, you know, COVID kind of came in. And, you know, kind of change some things for everyone, right? So we haven't been, uh, you know, going to conferences. So now I think we're on the back end of that, or at least it feels that way right now. But, you know, I think we're, we're, I think we see people going to conferences and we can get that going again. Who knows? You know, maybe that's something that, uh, that we can get the boys back together. Um, I'd certainly be, uh, I'd be okay with that. And I'd be certainly willing to participate. Uh, Always a lot of fun. And again, just a great collaborative experience Uh, to share that type of experience with folks. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. If we can ever do that again, I'd be, I'd be game.
1: So Amy, I think we we know some people, don't we? So we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Musical NASIO members. You heard it here
0: first. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question three, outside of fighting cyber criminals and playing music, do you have any other hidden talents?
2: Wow. That's a, you know, I think I'm a, I really spend a lot of time just trying to be a good dad. Um, I've got three little kids and, uh, nine, 12 and 15. And I spend a lot of time with my kids. So just not having a dad of my own growing up, I, I really spend a lot of time. So whether that's a talent or not, I just think it's an important job. Um, so I really spend a lot of time at least trying to be a good father, uh, to my kids. And so, you know, outside of that, I do write a lot of music as well. So as a, I'm a, I'm an avid songwriter that I do in my spare time. I play some golf, uh, when the weather warms up, I'm looking forward to getting out there. Uh, and playing some good golf as well. So, those are just some of the fun things I like to do. And, uh, but being a dad, I think is one of the most important things that's on my plate.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Eric, as always, so good to talk to you today. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Please give our best to all the fine folks in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. You know, Amy and I are both residents of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So, that's where all the cool people live in a Commonwealth. So, <laughs> Sorry to the <laughs> other states, but it's just in a commonwealth.
2: Will do. And it's, it's been great talking to you guys and I really appreciate it.
1: You as well. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks, Eric. Thanks again for listening to NASIO Voices.
1: NASIO Voices is a production of the National Association of State Chief Information Officers.
0: Registration for a NASIO mid-year conference in National Harbor, Maryland opens March 2nd. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, you can listen to past episodes of Nacio Voices at nacio.org slash podcast.